Hello, everyone, and welcome to our third episode of our Board Diversity podcast. Um, I am here again with uh, Emma Bartlett. Emma is a partner at the C.M. Murray firm in London, and my name is Teresa Johnson. I'm a, a corporate partner at Arnold and Porter in San Francisco, and we have been having a great time talking about board diversity in the U.S. and California and in the U.K. and discussing the and comparing and contrasting the different approaches and seeing how we can all learn from each other. So uh, with that, I'm, I'm going to hand the microphone over to, uh, to Emma to talk about the latest developments with the FCA. Thank you, Teresa. Um, it's great to be talking about this again. I, at this stage, we're recording this in August. There's a, there's a lot of um, drivers for change to diversity on boards at the moment. And the biggest one that we're talking about this week is the FCA has made uh, an announcement that it's going to introduce new diversity requirements and it started a consultation period which will end on the 22nd of October but essentially is the proposals are to change its listing rules to improve transparency for investors principally on diversity of listed company boards um, and also their executive management teams to make sure that they're the most and I have to say these are the most progressive DNI amendments I've seen proposed by regulator in recent years. They obviously made some changes to the uh, corporate governance rules uh, about two years ago, which were fairly extensive at the time or groundbreaking at the time, but these go so much further. And if implemented, I think they'll bring about important changes to diversity strategies adopted by the companies in scope. Shall I just explain what the changes are being proposed? That, that, that would be great. And it, it seems like this is all going to dovetail nicely to the, to the, the developments with NASDAQ that, that, uh, that I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. So it's perfect, perfect segue. Well, oh, fantastic. But I think actually, and I'm, I'm keen to hear your take on NASDAQ, but what it seems from my take is that the FCA is, is properly looking at what um, the US is doing in this respect. And it seems likely to me that the messages that these changes will come in um, largely as proposed, but obviously they're still subject to consultation at the moment. But the, the biggest changes are um, a voluntary target of 40% of the board should be women, um, including those identifying as women. At least one of the senior board positions, that's chair, CEO, um, or a senior independent director, or the CFO, should be a woman and at least one member of the board should be from a non-white ethnic minority background. So boards will be required to comply or explain in their annual financial reporting how they are performing against these voluntary targets alongside um, data on the composition of their board by gender and ethnicity as of a specified date, and I don't know when that date will be. For the future, the FCA is consulting as to whether to extend this narrative to also include data on sexual orientation and whether this data should extend to senior leaders, so those just below the executive. So I think that's that's great that they're looking forward and, and I think that mirrors um, what, we've, what you've discussed earlier, particularly on how to uh, improve diversity beyond gender, beyond ethnicity and look at other protected characteristics. Um, and then finally, the FCA is proposing to amend requirements for corporate governance statements to disclose the diversity policies which apply to the board and key committees of the board, specifically um, remuneration, audit and nomination committees, 
or to explain why no such policies apply. And it will allow them to clarify the aspects of the diversity which the diversity policy may relate to. Um, for example, uh, ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability, um, socioeconomic background, as well as those aspects already included in the relevant um, listing rules. That, that sounds like an, a, a, a kind of revolutionary approach, um, which is, is exciting. Did, has there been positive reaction to this development or negative or both? Oh, well, that, that's a really good question. I haven't actually um, come across negative reaction to this. Um, I think the reaction in the press is that this is wide ranging, extensive, but in line with where the Hampton Alexander review, um, which I've talked about before, was taking, you know, the leading companies within the UK and telling them. So the Hampton Alexander review was the one that adopted the um, for the FTSE 350 companies saying you have to have one third of your board and one third of your uh, senior leadership team um, and executive committees to be female. So it's taken that and then it's doubled it, really. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I would say a largely positive reaction. That's great. Um, well, I, I think it's been interesting to see how things have, have uh, evolved in the U.S. And, and we, we certainly have, uh, have we have voice, voices on both sides, although I think the, the voices on the side pushing for diversity are, are a bit louder and, and seem to be carrying the day. So the development here is that on last Friday, August 6th, the SEC announced that they had approved the NASDAQ proposal for a similar comply or disclose rule. And that would be imposed on companies listed on the NASDAQ exchange, which comprise a large number of significant companies, including many tech companies, many of the biggest tech companies are listed on NASDAQ. The SEC made this decision after extending the deadline a couple of times and soliciting more back from commentators. The process in involves uh, the you know, members of the public and interested parties to be able to solicit, to, to put in comments. And also um, they amended the, uh, the proposal at one point to provide a phase-in period for newly public companies and to modify the requirements for smaller companies. But to me, I think this is the most revolutionary change in, in corporate governance and board diversity that we have seen so far, because this is going to have a very wide ranging effect. There's a huge number of companies that are listed on NASDAQ and it's a much greater number than, for example, those that are subject to the California law. A, essentially the NASDAQ rule, which I think I've talked about before, but just to briefly recap, requires that each listed company with a board of six or more uh, needs to have one board member that identifies as female and another board member who identifies as a member of an underrepresented community uh, or LGBTQ. So essentially you, you end up with um, uh, a minimum of two, what they call diverse directors on these boards. And then there are scaled down requirements for smaller companies and foreign companies. I think the, the, the most, another significant feature of this is that NASDAQ is also making available to its listed companies for one year free services from a, a board diversity placement consultant so that they can be assisted in, in identifying diverse board members and expanding their board, which is, which is great. 
the NASDAQ rule also requires that the companies list uh, the board diversity matrix in their proxy statement, which will show on the aggregate the diversity of the board. There's been a lot of discussion around that and a lot of concerns about whether boards feel comfortable with or even whether it's legal to ask board members about their, their gender, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation. That's an evolving area, but I think that the fact that it's, it's self-identification uh, really carries the day there. And, and what most boards seem to be doing is to include in their director and officer questionnaire a question about whether people wish to identify as male or female or non-binary or you know, identify with their ethnicity or their sexual orientation, and it's really at their option. And so it's similarly, it's going to be a comply or explain. So the view is, is that that uh, helps with potential challenges under the constitution, just specifically the equal protection clause about whether this is imposing a you know, an, an impermissible restriction because it's not technically a restriction. I think in practice it is going to be because no company is going to want to explain why they don't have this level of diversity on their board. And so I think that we're gonna see widespread compliance with, uh, with, with this new law. So that being said, it's, it's gonna be interesting kind of to see how it plays out. The SEC commissioners, the, the way it's set up is there are two from each party and then whoever is the president selects the chairman. And so that typically is the aligned with, um, with the same party as the president. So in this case, we now have the Democrats three to two on the SEC. And this was adopted on the split vote on party lines. And the Democrats um, noted in particular that they were, they felt this was the first step towards greater diversity on boards and, and noted in, among other things, the fact that other categories might, might be subject to additional benefits or, or additional disclosure requirements such as disability. And the Republican commission, one of the Republican commissioners put out a statement noting that while he was very supportive of the benefits of diversity for boards and the way in which having a, a, a different set of viewpoints avoids groupthink and, and provides for greater, uh, greater flexibility among boards that he felt, and he was all yeah, in favor of the, the concept of having free help in uh, board diversity recruiting, he was not on board and thought that the SEC had fallen short of its legal requirements in approving the comply or, or uh, disclose rule because, in his view, the SEC had not dug deeply enough into the legal requirements around it and done a, uh, a deep enough dive into the, the reasons for why this is, is in the interest of, of the state and, and looking into the equal protection uh, protected categories. So, and, and that sort of mirrors some of the things we're hearing on the California side. So it's, an, it's going to be an interesting development in, in that the, the way in which this plays out, I think, is going to be that the, the legal challenges to it may, may go on and continue, but the effect of it is going, to, is going to kind of carry the day, and we'll see more diversity on boards while perhaps some legal challenges play out in, in various forms, and, and depending on where that comes out, by the time that gets decided, we may see a lot greater diversity on boards. That the um, the changes that are happening with regards to the companies on NASDAQ are obviously going to affect a much 
wider industry than the proposed changes by the FCA here. You know, the FCA will only, uh, the change, proposed changes will only increase pressure on companies, UK companies listing equity shares or certificates representing equity shares. I mean, in my view, this is going to see changes to the to wider industry as well, um, as perhaps other regulators will get on board or there will be pressure from investor groups to bring about change in different industries in which they invest. But um, what do you think is going to be, uh, well, a couple of questions. Do you think that in uh, in the US, the required changes, albeit that they're voluntary, will, will be brought about relatively quickly, as we've seen happen in California? I think so. Uh, the The rule doesn't doesn't impose any deadlines until I think August of 2023 is the first deadline. So they companies have a little a little bit of time to 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 get into compliance. Um, but I do think that there will be a big groundswell. I mean, there's already a lot of pressure from the large institutional investors to move in this direction, and so I think that that particularly for the larger companies, they may already be in compliance with these new requirements. Oh, okay. For those that aren't, they will, they will, I think, probably move quite quickly to, to do this. What will be very interesting to me will be looking at the smaller companies, because as you go down past the Fortune 100, Fortune 500 into companies that are publicly traded, but not as big, the diversity change, the diversity perspective or the diversity demographics change a lot. And you see a lot less diversity. So I think one of the big impacts of this NASDAQ law will be this NASDAQ comply or disclose rule will be that those companies will be will, will be in a position where they're going to have to either expand their boards or bring uh, bring on new board members in order to um, to comply with the requirements. So I, I, I do think we'll see a lot of changes in the in the near term. And, you know, that's that's all for the good. Yeah. What's the process with the FCA rule? Is it gonna? When does when does it go into effect, and does it have to go through some approval process? So it, yes, it will have to go through. Well, the consultation process is the approval process at the moment, which will end in October, and then the FCA will have to consider the um, outcome of the consultation before deciding to what extent it brings in any or all of the proposals over which it's consulting. Uh, personally, I think the changes will come in pretty quick. At the moment, interestingly, there is no mention that I could see, um, having read through the consultation document, that these changes would have to be achieved by a particular date. But perhaps that's something that will be clarified in the consultation document. I mean, it's always going to be harder for smaller boards, as you say. And that was something that was picked up by the Hampton Alexander Review in the UK, because obviously... Um, FTSE 350 companies come in all shapes and sizes, but once you mm. get below six board members, it was more. I think they found it more difficult to have diversity and to have that uh, turnover of board members, which would allow them to um, pay greater attention to diversity. I think that caused, uh, you know, slowed down the uh, ability for that company to meet the voluntary target, as it were. I am interested in the, um, you mentioned the challenges to the law. Um, there's some legal challenges occurring at the moment in, in California, is it? Or is it? Yes, yes, that, that, that's right. Um, so it, fairly recently, there, there was a, um, a lawsuit filed by 
a newly formed nonprofit called uh, the Alliance for Fair Board Recruitment. And, and the, the proponent behind that is a guy named Edward Blum, who was uh, the proponent behind a challenge to Harvard University's affirmative action admissions policy, which ultimately turned out to be not successful. But um, his, the claim he's filed in California is essentially against the, the two California laws that, that impose gender and underrepresented community quotas on California-based public companies. And he's, he's raising the claims that, that have been kind of talked about in, in, by the commentators about equal protection uh, and that they violate laws that forbid discrimination based on, on race in making and enforcing contracts, that, that essentially shareholders are being required to make a decision on directors uh, based on on you know race or gender considerations, um, and then also the internal affairs doctrine, which is this um, kind of a state specific thing, which basically says because our each state is you, corporations are incorporated under the laws of a particular state, so like Delaware, a lot of is the the home for a lot of, of corporations, and each state has uh, the ability to you know, legally regulate the, the corporations that are incorporated under the, under its laws. And so the question is, is, is it violative of the that internal affairs doctrine for California to try to put requirements on companies that are incorporated in Delaware, but based in California? So, and that's the sort of area in which California and Delaware have never seen eye to eye. There, there's a, there's a, a statute in California called, the, which we refer to as the quasi-California statute, that essentially where California imposes various governance requirements, not, not related to diversity on uh, companies that are, are based in California. And you know, the state of Delaware has never acknowledged that that's really legally binding on Delaware corporations. But as a matter of course, companies that are based in California and incorporated in Delaware tend to comply with those because they just don't want to you know, get in the middle of it. But this might be an interesting opportunity to sort that out. Yeah. But, but I think what's really interesting, and I wanted to, to, to raise this point because I think it's, it's, a, um, it's an interesting kind of kernel at the core of all of this, is that the, the claims raised in these, in these cases are, I think, bringing to the fore the idea of whether it really is beneficial for, for financial per- performance and for the company's business to have a more diverse board. And what I have heard from and seen in, in some of these um, discussions and, and heard from some academics who look at this is that they view that there's a distinction between the studies that have been done by Catalyst and by McKinsey, you know, kind of more the, the business uh, focused studies where they have found a correlation between better financial performance of a company and a more diverse board. They contrast that with academic studies that are designed to look more at causation. And the the claim is that in the academic studies that they do not see a causal link between diversity of boards and stronger financial performance. And the question then becomes, so, you know, is, is is the point of having more diversity on boards really just about it leads to greater financial performance, or is it more about we think as part of being a, a just and fair society, we should have a more diverse board and it may or may not lead to better financial performance. Maybe it correlates with better financial performance, but that shouldn't be the driver. 
So I, I, I think that's a really interesting point because I feel like that's going to be that, that as this becomes such an area of focus that that there will be more challenges to this this notion that I think is the basis for a lot of the laws and, and regulations that are being adopted that board diversity naturally enhances performance. Yeah, when um, this first started being talked about sort of 10, 11 years ago, the selling point actually was that diversity of thought will give you a better risk profile as a business, but then will impact positively your bottom line as a company. And the McKinsey study type studies, and one was from McKinsey at the time, did actually show a direct correlation between improvements in diversity and improvements on your bottom line. And um, the whole concept of having diversity of thought and not having everybody thinking, you know, having a, a group of leaders on a board who all went to the same school or all look the same and have had similar upbringings are likely to have um, no diversity of thought. And that has led to poor risk management in certain, not, not certainly not in all cases, but it, it, it has been um, contributing factors to risk and financial aspects of business. So I'm really interested to hear how that plays out. But one thing in the UK that um, is recognised now is that aside from answering that question, whether or not diversity on boards actually does improve your bottom line, is um, the fact that uh, underpinning all of this is that the aspiration that diversity is recognised in its own right as a benefit to board effect effectiveness seems to be something which has um, certainly got merit um, and has its own respect in the UK, in the same way that investors are looking to um, invest on, on the basis of ESG, then you know diversity is part and parcel of that. And so it is now something about doing the right thing, as well as um, this is good for business, in my view. I, I, I agree with that. And I, I think that as we, as we go along down this path, I think, I think we will see a focus on the benefits of, of having just greater diversity in a, in a boardroom situation and, and, the, and the fact that it is the right thing to do to have a, you know, remove some of the barriers that, uh, that have existed to block people from coming into the boardroom and, and this notion of the board being, being comprised of, you know, the CEO's best friends and so forth. That's, that's, that's a that's a, uh, a circumstance whose whose time has to pass. And I, I also think that the idea of looking at stock price as being the measure of the company's financial performance is, a, is 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 not the right way to look at it because stock price, as we have all seen, can vary significantly. It can be influenced by all kinds of external factors. It may not be a real measure of how the company is doing. We've certainly seen the, the meme stocks of, of this year being an example of, of things where the, the market forces and, and influencers can just you know, move the stock price enormously. So it, it would seem to me that it would be better to look at things like EBITDA or profits per share or something like that as a, as a more uh, direct metric of, of, of measuring performance. I, I'm really interested to hear about the um, services which companies can uh, take advantage of for free. Um, from a, a you mentioned a board diversity placement consultant. Yes, uh, it's uh, Nasdaq has partnered with a company called Equilar, um, which has been focused on 
uh, board diversity for quite some time and has kind of been in the lead in, in identifying and, and uh, helping bring along people, women, people of color, people from other underrepresented backgrounds. And so it's a, it's a very, it's a very, I think, good move in terms of trying to provide not only provide some, some uh, impose a new requirement on the NASDAQ listed companies, but then also to help them accomplish that goal. And interestingly, um, I think that there have been uh, there have been rules like that in other cases. You know, the state of California a long time ago adopted a, a law to where they set up a, a register of distinguished women and minorities to be part of boards. And I've, I've not seen that you know, get get much traction. But I think that this this new rule, coupled with the requirement to disclose or comply, I think will really move the needle in terms of, of improving board diversity. And, um, and we'll see kind of how this, how this evolves as we go forward. But it seems to me in kind of looking down the road, um, the, the things that I see coming on the horizon in the US, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you wanna think about what's coming in, in the UK, but I think we'll see more movement towards towards greater diversity, perhaps some other states or, or other uh, self-regulatory organizations adopting similar rules along the lines of what NASDAQ has done. I think we probably won't see too many more quotas because I think that's just up in the air. Uh, and I think we will see the the evolution of litigation and and I think hopefully maybe some some more refinement of our thinking about why board diversity is important and and merely focusing on it on as as a financial performance improvement is is I think not necessarily the way to go. So what, yeah. what do you where do you think things are going in, in the UK? Well, in, in the UK, I think businesses are, are going, and boards in particular, are going to have to work harder to address behaviours and um, that will create include, truly inclusive cultures. And, you know, getting rid of the all-male executive committees um, is going to be part of that, focusing in particular on um, the diverse recruitment to boards. Um, and as you mentioned, the, uh, the diversity placement consultant will do it great deal if there was something equivalent but there, there are um, executive recruiters in the UK that are very much talking about diversity in terms of how they provide uh, balanced teams and candidates but um, I'm going to leave you with this I, I came across a new phrase this week um, called the gender say gap and I thought it was a typo to start off with but it's actually uh, a phrase that is being used to refer to the fact that there is still this gap on on boards where there continues to be a predominance of all male voice, a predominance of male voices in the business in some particular industries more so than other. And as a result, even if there are some women or um, more diverse directors leading those businesses um, or just below board level, there isn't yet that critical mass to close the gender say gap. So I thought that was really good. I'll leave you with, I'll leave you with that one. Um, that, that is a that is a great phrase. I, I I hope you won't mind if I borrow it. It's it's excellent. <laughs> Thank you. And that may that I think could be a segue into something we might discuss on a future episode, which is I I, I know that that there's some uh, studies going on uh, where they're looking at the dynamics inside the boardroom, exactly that issue that you're talking about, and how how directors actually interact with each other and 
you know, what kind of diversity you need in order to be able to have those diverse voices be raised. So it's a, it's, it's not just about getting people in the room. It's, it's, you know, making sure that the, that their voices are heard to be sure. Fantastic. Well, I think this concludes our third podcast and uh, there's, there's definitely, we've left, I don't think we've left it on a, quite on a cliffhanger, but there's definitely scope for us to continue this conversation again. You're here. All right. Thank you, everyone. We'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Trevor.